This is a Village Soundcast Network original production. Welcome to Lends Me Your Ears, the film podcast where we see something new in cinemas and connect and compare it to older films by the same filmmaker or in the same genre. Sometimes we give love to the work of the lead actor. My name is Karsten Knox. I am a film writer and a critic. My blog is called Flaw in the Iris, and it can be found at halifaxbloggers.ca. And my name is Stephen Cook. I'm a multimedia journalist with the Chronicle Herald and the Saltwire Network here in Halifax. On this episode, we are watching Black Widow, the new Marvel Cinematic Universe film finally arriving in cinemas and on Disney Plus Premium, if you want to get there, but recommend it in cinemas. And we're going to talk about, a little differently this time, some of the key production people, in fact, who brought it to us and find out what they did in years past. And that's coming up on Lens Me Your Ears. Hi, and welcome to Lens Me Your Ears, the film podcast that takes a look at new films in theaters or on streaming platforms and compares it to similar titles from days gone by. And uh, this week, we saw a film in the theater. <laughs> Amazing. It was such a novelty. It wonderful. I know. It felt so good to be in a theater watching a movie. And uh, this is one that we've both been waiting for for a long time, the much-delayed Black Widow, the latest installment in the Marvel cinematic universe and it's uh yeah it was supposed to come out uh i believe last may of 2020 uh and of course got delayed many times then they were looking at maybe a maybe a release in the fall um november or thereabouts um and uh, maybe like on thanksgiving and then they decided well no not enough theaters are up and running uh we'll just put it on hold until 2021 until such time as uh conditions permit people to actually see this in a theater and i'm glad they waited i'm glad they didn't just uh put it onto you know disney plus or what have you for uh, online consumption because uh it's a you know it's 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 a big screen marvel movie after three different series uh of uh, marvel tv shows it's great to be back in a theater and seeing one on a on a bigger scale with some of uh familiar characters that we're, we're used to from the avengers movies and uh, the avengers uh connected universe as it were absolutely and you know this particular character natasha romanoff played by scarlett johansson aka the black widow uh, one of my favorite characters from the comics and chronically underserved oh, by these big movies. Time. Like the only woman in the Avengers and at least for a while until uh, the Scarlet Witch appeared. Uh, Wanda, of course, who is now, uh, you know, had her own show with the Vision. Um, but for longtime fans, uh, it just felt like she, she was such a great character, had so much mystery and mystique. And uh, I felt like she deserved her own movie well. I mean, she deserved, I was thinking back in 2013, it was time for a Black Widow movie. But at the time, I think the uh, prevailing thoughts uh, was that there hadn't been a female-fronted superhero movie since what, like Elektra or maybe, um, uh, geez, Catwoman? Like, <laughs> I was going to say Catwoman could, yeah. could potentially. And, and of course, those didn't do very well. So everyone was like, oh, well, no one wants to see women, you know, fully in the front a, a superhero movie. and Which course, is ridiculous. It is ridiculous. It was ridiculous then. Of course, since then, they've had Wonder Woman. We've seen Captain Marvel. Uh, all huge business. And, uh, you know, away we go now to this, this late coming prequel now because 
and this shouldn't be a spoiler for anyone who's listened to this, is that the character of Black Widow has met her end in the current continuity for these films. Uh, so they went back and they tell a story that took place between uh, Captain America's Civil War which uh, was, I think, 2015, 2016. And she didn't appear in any of the subsequent Marvel movies until uh, Avengers uh, Infinity War. So there was a gap of like four or five movies that she just wasn't in. And so we find out what she she got up to in her time. And uh, she was on the run from the American government. Uh, uh, William Hurts, of course, uh, uh, as uh, General Ross uh, watching, following her. I think he's actually, um, he's Secretary of State, weirdly enough. He's like leading these these <laughs> missions to try to catch her. Uh, very hands-on. Um, and uh, and so, yeah, and, and she goes off pieced off um, the map and uh, connects with an older part of her uh, her history where she was once a, a part of a sleeper cell, this family in Ohio in the 90s, the mid 90s. And uh, we see, we, actually the film starts in flashback where she's she's a girl, a tween, and she's with her family. And then we, they she reconnects with them, starting with Yelena, who is uh, also a product of the Red Room, this Russian uh, assassin training um, uh, group where these women get, uh, get beaten into shape. I mean, in a very scary and intense and uh, almost like a human trafficking sort of way uh, to become killers for the state. And uh, and they reconnect in a kind of sisterly way. That was kind of cool. And then then the parents come into it as well. Uh, Rachel Weiss and David Harbour. And um, yeah, yeah, it, it's uh, it's as a self-contained Marvel movie. And it was great to see this exists. I was happy for to see the movie. It is not the Black Widow movie that I was waiting for. It didn't. I don't feel it, her character really changed much, and um, and that was one of the problems with him. There are other problems I have with it too, which I'll go into. But Stephen, I want to hear what you you thought of it. Uh, you know, you've seen. I've seen it twice. You've seen it once. What did you make of it? Well, I, I certainly enjoyed the character driven parts of the movie more than the action set piece uh, driven part of the movie, just because we've seen exploding platforms in the sky and, and chases through indistinct European capitals and that kind of thing. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. You know, I mean, that's fine. I mean, that stuff can still be very entertaining, but uh, you know, this is our last chance as far as we know, anyway, to spend any amount of time with, uh, with Natasha, with the black widow uh, and uh, who, who has been very effective in moments um, in the prior movies, but of course, never really got to shine or, or, or you know, or was always kind of an adjunct. Uh, and, you know, she, she always hinted at her past in, in previous movies. I believe she refers to the Red Room um, in a conversation maybe with Hawkeye in one of the Avengers movies. I, I didn't go back and rewatch any of the previous appearances. I feel like maybe I should have rewatched Civil War or something like that. Uh, actually, that might not be a bad idea to, to, to have another look at Civil War before going to see... Um, Black Widow. I didn't do that. I'm kind of kicking myself a little bit because I had to kind of mentally bring myself back up to speed. Uh, it's not crucial that you watch any other previous uh, Marvel films uh, prior to seeing Black Widow, but it doesn't hurt to give you give yourself a refresher. And, you know, the stuff where she's just kind of hiding away in Norway and kind of trying to get her life back on track. And you know, I was like, I wanted to just see more stuff of her. Uh, you know, in her life, <laughs> you know, away from the Avengers and away from having to save the world every five minutes uh, and and spend more time with her as a character. But that that opportunity is pretty short lived. And I guess, uh, 
you know, the, the movie that I want to see is not necessarily the movie that Marvel would ever want to make. Uh, you know, they've, they've allowed a few kind of outlying movies like Logan. They're kind of what if uh, Wolverine movie, which was great, but they, I don't think they were about to do that with Black Widow. I, they, they needed another franchise entry after two years uh, without uh, their presence on the screen, I guess. Uh, and that's that's unfortunate. I, I think it would have it could have been a chance to do something a little bit different for a Marvel movie and and maybe tell a different kind of of Marvel story. And and when they do try to do that, especially with the the kind of family in quotes because they're not really, they're a family, but they're not really a family. Um, uh, that stuff I thought worked really well. And, and then, uh, then of course everybody has to split up to, to accomplish their mission. And I thought, oh, well, that was, maybe there should have been a little less of that and more of, of, of these people being together and, you know, because they're the only people they can possibly relate to in the planet. And, uh, uh, uh even as they're, you know, sort of following their own personal agendas and, and that kind of stuff appealed to me a lot more. Um, oddly enough, I, I'm deep into the series, the Americans, um, with uh you know about a, a, a an american family that's actually a front for for two uh male and female russian spies and you know as any review of black widow will tell you that the entry uh flashback set in ohio is basically another version of that like it just seems entirely drawn from uh from that uh tv show as as these uh russians are pretending to be americans and live an american life while performing espionage on American soil, but obviously, you know, this doesn't have a lot of time to spend there. And, uh, I kind of, I, even though that doesn't involve an adult Natasha Romanoff, uh, I kind of like that aspect of the movie too, but, um, you know, that was obviously just kind of setting the, the, uh, the scene for it, but yeah, totally, totally. But, uh, but it was fun. It was fun to, to have that kind of little flashback. You know, I, I don't think, I don't know if that's in the comics, but I, I didn't really know that aspect of her life. And I don't think she referred to her early American life, uh, at any other point in these movies. So that was kind of a treat. Um, but, uh, you know, yeah, it does. Once, once it gets, it gets to, uh, the stuff with, uh, accessing the red room, which is another flying fortress in the sky, just like, uh, the shield flying fortresses and, and so on. And, and any number of, um, you know, maybe some, some of the more ludicrous James Bond, uh, entries, um, the blimp in, <laughs> in view to a killer, <laughs> yeah. whatever Moonraker had going up on, uh, up in space. Um, you know, th that's when it, the formula kind of kicks in and we just kind of have to let it wash over us. But yeah, but uh, the stuff that gets us there is, is the entertaining, really entertaining part of the movie yeah, for me. Absolutely. Me too. Uh, the, the sort of second act, the middle part of the movie. Uh, and I'm also a big fan of the Americans. It is very dense and it's like the little bit of Black Widow that's like the Americans is the best part of it. Uh, not just that opening, but this connection these people have. It's about their trauma and about, you know, trying to do a mission and trying to have faith in the the state in this in this uh, this mission that they're on. But clearly they've been betrayed by the organization that created them, all of them. And so that's what that part of it is about. And I, I really like that. I like the character stuff. And And you're right. It's Marvel, I mean, I'm not, I don't want people to think that I'm opposed to action, big action stuff. I mean, that's the stuff that jumps off the screen, of course, when you watch the thing. But but the, I'm going to compare this to Mission Impossible, which is another franchise that deals in espionage tropes and, and genre elements. And Mission Impossible knows, I mean, Tom Cruise knows that he has to mix it up every time. It has to be true to the sort of espionage stuff and the mission stuff. And has to be outrageous and, well, literally impossible. It seemed impossible. But 
they have to achieve something special and they do it through character moments. They do it through incredible stunts, things that you've never seen. Every time one of those movies opens, you know you're going to see something you haven't seen in the franchise previously. And I don't think that's what's being delivered in Black Widow. I think we've seen all the action stuff is stuff we've seen done, if not better, maybe not, but at least as good previously. And so, yeah, it's that part of it's really disappointing. And that's a good, you know, I don't know, three-fifths, half of it anyway, feels like it's action stuff. And and I, and I also compare it to, say, Captain America Winter Soldier, which had a very compelling sort of Cold War um, uh, plot with a lot of, uh, of tension and suspense, but also the big set pieces. But that one was somehow more engaging. And of course, Black Widow was a big part of, of that. And that's probably one of the, my top three of the Marvel Cinematic Universe films is uh, Captain America Civil War, or um, Winter Soldier. Civil War is also not bad, but Winter Soldier. So so yeah, it, it, um, it disappointed on those fronts. I also think the Black Widow has a villain problem. Ray Winston shows up <laughs> late going. He's hiding barely hiding his his cockney accent as a russian and uh yeah i think he's supposed to be a bond baddie like hugo drax or carl stromberg you know we see actually yeah they, they, they tip their hand a little they, bit yeah they tip their head a little bit to um to moonraker at one point in the film which is a delight but uh but yeah it um he doesn't really manifest in a way that i felt was interesting and and this is something else that we've learned from the marvel universe movies is that a good villain that has a real human quality to them makes the movie so much better. Um, you know, I'm thinking about, well, as I mentioned, Captain America, Winter Soldier, uh, Black Panther, or uh, even Avengers Endgame. I mean, Thanos is someone, is a character we all got to know pretty well. So, yeah, yeah. yeah. And I missed, I thought the Taskmaster, who is a fascinating villain in the, in the, um, in the comics, is kind of, you know, a robotic presence here. Cool, but Again, the the Taskmaster has a, a secret that we learn later on. I won't, I won't say what it is, but, uh, you know, I, I sort of wish that had been revealed a lot sooner so we could have had more of a sort of tete-a-tete a, a fight going on between. Yeah, it feels like there should be a lot more poignancy as regards to that character, and we don't really get it. I mean, it's you feel like it's supposed to be there, but the film doesn't really work too hard to establish that. And, yeah, Dracov, I mean— I I love Ray Winstone. I'll yeah. you know, watch him in pretty <laughs> much awesome. anything. And uh you know, I mean he he does, you know, get to chew the scenery a fair bit and, you know, go into a blind rage and be a be a baddie and he's making the most of what he's got to work with. But, you know, I I was I was a little confused. Like is he serving Mother Russia or has he got his own agenda? Like is he he's trying to rule the world here or on or on but I wasn't yeah, it was you know, it's a little confused as to what I mean, he's obviously got all this power. He's got uh-huh. this you know, army of hypnotized, brainwashed uh, super soldiers at his disposal. Uh, and, uh, but what his actual ends are, I think were a little vague. Um, and also, in and speaking of that, I, I felt like maybe the Black Widow program itself could have had a little more um, weight given to it. Yeah. You know, that the, there's this kind of army of anonymous female warriors that, uh, you know, they're just kind of, props really they don't you know they they don't really get to have a real presence you know half the time they're just in their room doing their you know <laughs> their maneuvers or their exercises or whatever and then when they're finally unleashed it's fairly you know fairly anonymous action with not a lot of personality or or verve injected into it and i feel like maybe there could have been more done with with those characters or mm-hmm. or at least 
maybe give them some character yeah. uh, and, uh, you know, uh, maybe sacrifice some of the exploding uh, debris-laden, uh, you know, action sequence plummeting to earth stuff at the end of the film. It's like, you know, that, that just seems to go on forever. And I feel like time-wise, we could have had a little less of that and a little more uh, of, of some of the other interesting elements that have been introduced, but not really uh, used to their full potential. Yeah, I and mean, that's that's the the Black Widow movie I was looking for is to more about that, more about the the the, the damage that's been done to her as a character and her how she tries to do good. Um, you know, I I wasn't a big fan of Jennifer Lawrence film The Red Sparrow, but I feel like it was the tone that I was kind of yeah, looking that, for. I feel like for there's a Black Widow movie. I don't know if that was an influence or just a weird coincidence, but but there's definitely uh, a lot of similarities between between the two films obviously red sparrow is like a hard r um kind of film but um but certainly the idea of of uh you know brainwashing women into being these kind of super agents uh you know we've we've seen that before so oh. you know this this in in that film so this film really needed to double down on the characters that we were given and and i, I feel like i do enjoy the moments that we get and um uh, especially David Harbour steals every scene that he's in. I mean, we, we already, you know, love this guy from Stranger Things and other stuff he's been in. And he's great as the dad who's basically the, the Russian version of Captain America. Uh, the Crimson Dynamo? No, no. That, <laughs> that, was a, that was a great Marvel joke. Yes, exactly. And, uh, and, and, and Rachel Weisz has some, some great moments as well. She's, she's wonderful here. And, uh, you know, and, and she's really great to watch in, in, um, in her scenes. And I feel like maybe... And, and, and Florence Pugh, uh, you know, sh- she gets to deal, she has a lot more pain to deal with and expresses her trauma a lot better than Natasha does. And in some ways, I feel like uh, Black Widow actually gets sidelined a bit by the other three family members uh-huh. because they seem to have either better dialogue or, or you know, b- better written backgrounds or, or just more presence than she's allowed to, to present. And, and uh, so the family dynamic is a little skewed that way. But I do enjoy the time we get with those characters and... and uh, you know, wish they'd had more of them as a unit, but I've already said that much. Yeah. I mean, I know I'm with you there. I actually thought the first time I saw it, I thought Harbor was way over the top and he bugged me. But the oh. second time I saw him, I, I warmed to him a bit more. I, I got some of the humor appealed to me more. Um, and yeah, I mean, I think Pew is the best thing in it, obviously. And I don't think this is a spoiler for anybody. They're setting Florence Pew up as a as a new person in the Marvel Cinematic Universe sort of to take over uh, as a Black Widow. And uh, we'll see what happens. But I mean, she's so good in this. And uh, she does. Does, you know, take away from some of uh, of uh, Scarlett Johansson's sort of. I mean, she gets a lot of screen time, and it would have been nice to have more Johansson in if this is the last time we get to see her. Well, that's true. Yeah, but um, but Pew is terrific, and I, I hopefully you know in the future she gets uh, more of an opportunity to take the mantle of a Black Widow into the MCU and do more with it. Uh, he's given more opportunity, I guess. And on that, on that note, uh, remember to stay. I mean, it's it's a Marvel movie. You already know this, but stay to the end of the credits. There is an extra scene at the very end that's going to set some stuff up down the road and also connects this to some of the TV stuff uh, that we've seen as well. So, And it's all away at the end of the credits. It's not partway through. So you got to sit through a lot of names of digital artists working in Quebec and stuff like that <laughs> to get there. But it's, it's it's worth it. It's a fun little scene. And speaking of, of all those names, we're going to get into that next. Some of the production people and we're going to find out what they've done previously to Black Widow. 
All right, so segment two of uh, Lends Me Your Ears, the film podcast here with Stephen Cook and myself, Karsten Knox, and we are talking about Black Widow, and we're going to look at some of the films, the previous work, by some key production people. We're going to start with the director, Kate Shortland. She is an Australian director, has done a number of independent films. The one we watched is called Lore, and uh, it's from 2012. And it's set in the last days of the Second World War, and a family, a German family, who happened to be a Nazi family, are on the run. The mother is distraught over the death of Der Fuhrer, believes the Allies will kill the children, uh, the five children, so she abandons them at a farmhouse in the Black Forest. Now, the father, who was a, a, a soldier in the army, he is also absent. And so the kids, they leave the farmhouse. Uh, they led by the eldest sister, a teenager named Hannah Laura, and they make their way across the country to what their hope is their grandparents' place near Hamburg. Um, as they go along, Laura starts to see the photos in a town square from the concentration camps and start to understand that what's been going on in the Nazi regime, there may be more going on than she originally had thought. Uh, and, and her soldier father might have been complicit in some of that. Um, and eventually, Laura's path cross, crosses and the kid's path crosses with a Jewish concentration camp survivor, a young man. Um, and, uh, and then he becomes important to the, their effort to survive. Um, this is, it's interesting, Shortland's having seen Black Widow, watching this, I suddenly understood some of the sort of stylistic choices of the Black Widow. And Shortland has a really gorgeous sort of color-saturated, sort of dreamlike style for this film, for Lore. Um, you know, she likes to shoot with sort of woozy close-ups of mouths and body parts. Um, there is, I mean, this is an intense, dramatic film. There's a lot of violence, especially towards women in the film. I should mention that right from the start for anyone who's listening might consider watching it. But this sort of crumbling society that leaves women and girls especially vulnerable, you can really see it there. Um, but uh, yeah, it's a film that I had some, I took some issue with, but I'll, I'll get to that. Um, but uh, yeah, Stephen, I mean, I was really glad to see it so soon after Black Widow, just to kind of connect the dots in terms of the directorial style. Yeah, you can see why the family scenes in the early part of Black Widow are as good as they are. Uh, watching Lore, um, or Lore, I guess, mm -hmm. um, th 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 that uh, the, the kind of dysfunctionality within Hannah Lore's family that is invested in the children once they're without their parents and they're off on their own in the countryside um, uh, sort of manifests itself again in uh the family in black widow it's 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 interesting to compare the two the films of course are are nothing alike but she's she's good at balancing those kind of disparate characters uh within a family unit and uh it's 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 funny i mean uh, I'm sure to most people, uh, Kate Shortland's name is completely unknown. Uh, she has another film called Berlin Syndrome about someone trapped in an apartment in Berlin, uh, which apparently was largely filmed in Melbourne. She's an Australian director, but she made this film in Germany in the German language, which is kind of interesting. Um, and I, I don't even think she spoke German, but uh, you know, it was one of those international co-productions. And that's, that's kind of what happened. Yeah, that is. And, uh, you know, she she gets these young female characters, which I think maybe helps with uh, her uh, understanding of Natasha and um, and Florence Pugh's character. In, uh, Yelena, uh, yeah. Yelena in, uh, in, in Black Widow, and maybe that's why those are the scenes are the strongest there. Uh, and 
and it's it's a really compelling story for me. I, I didn't really know where it was going to go. It's it's hard to say what's going to happen along the way, and there are some some shocking surprises in the film, and it's it just portrays such an interesting interesting period in history from the eyes of uh, a couple of young survivors who are you know eventually going to have to be tasked with rebuilding this country, um, you know, and burying that past or putting that past behind them. And uh, so there's a lot to think about while watching the film. And it is, you know, they are traveling through the countryside for the most part. There is that kind of pastoral feel to it. But the the horrors of the war are never far from either their minds or the minds of viewers because, you know, we, we, what, you know, the war is still pretty ingrained in our minds in terms of history and what we understand about it. And, uh, and I thought that it captured all that really well. Yeah, I, I did. Th- I thought production wise, it was really good. My problem with the film and, and it's something that I just struggle with. And I, I don't think this will be universal f- for people. I still would recommend the film, but, but I, you know, the, the crux is, is these privileged kids uh, have had, you know, have, have, are having the, the sort of, you know, they're opening their eyes to what's going on and they're having this intense, uh, difficult experience. But uh, Laura herself, you know, she's the one we see the world through. And I found myself really at a distance from her. I found myself struggling to find sympathy for her because she's <laughs> she's a she's bought into the Nazi, you know, ideals. And I mean, of course, that's what really the film is about. It's about her kind of coming to terms with what might be the truth. And by the end, of course, she has an understanding that's different from the beginning of the film. But uh, I guess as she's going, I, I didn't, I, you know, I, I struggled. I, I've had sympathy for the family because they're, you know, young people in circumstances beyond their control trying to survive. But I also was like, they're a Nazi fam- family. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. I mean, but what are you going to do in that uh, that instance? Uh, they're, um, you know, they've got to have the scales removed from their eyes. And, and uh, you know, and, and it embodies what a whole country had to go through, uh, mm. yeah, you know, true. to kind of wake up from being hypnotized for the last you know decade or so and uh you know which isn't an easy thing and and i guess by focusing on the children they can humanize it a little bit more than if they'd focus on adults or what or what have you yeah, who should have known better who yeah. should have known better whereas yeah. they, they didn't really have a choice and uh i feel in that way at least it's 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 more effective and of course they do come across older germans who are still clinging to those old third reich ideas even though they've you know, crumbled into dust. And, and, you know, that's kind of an interesting thing as they make their way across uh, the country as well. Uh-huh. And uh, it's, yeah, I, I, I found it pretty, pretty compelling and pretty interesting story is kind of like the, the German flip side of hope and glory, um, right, right. you know, whereas these kids are, are basically making their way through the rubble. It's, it's kind of an adventure, but it's also pretty terrifying, especially since they have an infant with them and how they're going to care for this baby uh, is also a pretty terrifying prospect as well. So, uh, there's, there's a lot going on in the film to kind of keep you engaged and and uh, and and sort of actively involved as it continues. So I, I definitely recommend it. I haven't seen Berlin Syndrome, but I'm curious to see it uh, based on having seen this film and, of course, now Black Widow. Yeah, no, I am too. Um, yeah, I guess my problem is I don't think I was entirely engaged. I felt still, ah. I, but but I could just be, you know, a horrible person. Maybe that's <laughs> what it is. Uh, we nope, should ta- Nazi kids are bad. <laughs> <laughs> um, we should talk about Ned Benson, who is credited as a writer on uh, Black Widow and his film, The Disappearance of Eleanor Rigby, which came out in 2014, 2013, somewhere in there. I saw it first in at the Atlantic Film Festival, as it was known then, and I was blown away by it. Now, here's the thing. Benson, who wrote and directed The Disappearance of Eleanor Rigby, this is Black Widow is his first credit since that film, which 
kind of shocks me, but he he created this incredible film and he broke it in two. It's basically about a, a couple's relationship in New York City where that dissolves uh, after personal tragedy, as told from the perspective of the man and then of the woman. Uh, and, uh, and so it was meant to be two films that you watch separately and then you get the full perspective of, of what happened. And uh, I guess Weinstein, who, you know, produced the film was like, nope, nope, that's never going to work. We're going to cut it together as one feature, them, which uh, was released. It didn't get much of a release. I mean, I, I don't think it barely opened in cinemas, but it this is a film that if you've missed, you really should seek out. I was fortunate enough to find the original the original versions, the him and her, are available on an American Blu-ray. So I was ordered that. I got that so I can watch that. But I think generally the them version is the one that you can find most easily. It stars Jessica Chastain uh, and, uh, and James McAvoy as the two characters who are sort of front and center. She's her, – her story is about her and her relationship to her family and her sister especially trying to move on. Uh, from this relationship and from the tragedy in her past. And he, in the him version, uh, he is a restaurateur and he, um, you know, he's trying to his, he's got some anger issues and his, his business is failing. And it's about his relationship with his best buddy, who is the cook, the chef at the restaurant and his father. Uh, And, uh, and eventually the, the two stories do overlap, but you'll notice if you watch the two versions that, uh, that, their memories or their their perceptions of what happens. Some key scenes are actually different. So that's what that I think is, is the reward of seeing the two separate versions to see how they perceive things differently. Um, but it is a real joy. Also in the film uh, on on the um, uh, on the Chastain's the L side is uh, is William Hurt and Isabel Huppert uh, as her parents. And Jess Wexler as her sister, and on and oh, and Viola Davis, who's also great in it. On his side, uh, Kieran Hines plays his father, and uh, Bill Hader plays the chef. Uh, and they're all really good, lovely support. And it's a great summer New York film. You really get a sense of the time and the place, and lots of street scenes. So, um, yeah, Stephen, what did you make of it? Yeah, that's pretty extraordinary, uh, especially to have the two different perspectives. Uh, I think just by the nature of Chastain's performance, the the her side is is stronger than the him side. It, it's just uh, that's just how it's going to be. <laughs> she's definitely going to generate a lot more sympathy, and and uh, she's processing a lot more trauma. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, but 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 you know McAvoy is such a, an appealing performer that you know you can't help but enjoy his uh, stuff as well, especially with Kieran Hines, who has, has makes absolutely no appearances in the her film, so you you don't even see him. Um, in the uh, Chastain centered uh, version. So, uh, so that's another plot. And he's, he's very fascinating character as as, uh, a famous restaurateur who, uh, you know, McAvoy uh, has clearly descended very strongly from and has inherited a lot of traits from, but um, I'm trying to think of if, if, of other films that have done this kind of thing. Like I I think of, um, I remember Wayne Wang's kind of smoke and blue in the face. Mm, Yeah. Yeah. uh, Which, uh, I don't think we're made concurrently. I think one followed the other because they had some, they had like a, an extra couple of weeks of production. Um, they, they finished ahead of schedule on one film. So they just quickly threw together another film using some of the same characters and so on afterwards. And I'm sure there are other examples of, of, of films uh, kind of 
intertwining this way. I mean, we've heard of films and their immediate sequels being made simultaneously, but this is a whole other kettle of fish. And I, th I thought it was a pretty successful, uh, I won't call it an experiment because it's much more than that, but uh, certainly a, a successful uh, exercise in, in presenting this story from uh, two different vantage points and with differing sets of information. And, and, and I thought the way it explored grief and relationships all felt pretty true. Um, and and it, it certainly doesn't hurt to have such powerful performers uh, on pretty much all fronts uh, throughout the films. Yeah, I, and, and Ned Benson, I mean, he wrote and directed The Disappearance of Eleanor Rigby. And uh, he's, you know, remarkable talent. And I, I'm, I'm sad to see it's taken this long for him to get another credit in Hollywood because I got to think that this experience making this film, besides the fact it got almost no acclaim, um, I happen to know that uh, Norm Wilner in Toronto considered one of his, one of the best films of the, uh, or the best pair of films, I guess, of the decade. He was a huge fan of this. and um, as, But uh, but generally, it didn't get a lot of love. And I don't understand why, because, you know, even I've seen the amalgamated version, and it's really great. It's not as great as both the individual versions, but it's also so really well done. You just get less of the supporting cast. Uh, but um, the performances themselves are really off the chart. I just felt completely engaged by them. And uh, it's funny, when when I got a chance to finally see the two different versions, I um, tweeted at um, uh, Jessica Chastain, which one should I watch first? And she just she just liked my tweet. She didn't respond. <laughs> and I was like, oh, coy, coy. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I uh, I don't know. If you have the opportunity to see both, I guess probably start with her and then go on to him. Because as you say, the her version, it's a little longer and it it's more... It's the heart of the story because she is she's the one who's going through more, I think, and he is a little more, a little less substantial. Uh, his story. I mean, it's still engaging and involving, and and you feel his loss because his partner has vanished from his life, and he just wants to reconnect with her. But uh, but you know, it's what she's going through is a lot bigger deal. Yeah, and I think her also makes it clear what's happening with their relationship, their marriage, and and. And, um, you know, with the tragedy that happens in their life is a lot more clear, I think, in, in her, the her film than it is in the him film. So I'd say it definitely, uh, definitely start there. Uh, but um, but you definitely want to see both. And uh, like the, I mean, the, the, the Eleanor Rigby, her film starts right off the bat, starts with her uh, attempt to commit suicide. So you already that it just brings you right into the. I'll say the action, even though it's not an action film, but brings you right into the the meat of what the film's about almost immediately. And I, I like the fact that it doesn't, um, you know, it it doesn't dress things up with a lot of backstory or whatever. You have to kind of pick up the clues as it goes along. But it, right off the bat, you get a pretty strong impression of of uh, what a terrible crossroads this woman is at in her life. And um, and whereas you do get a little more backstory with the him version, but it's it's really not crucial to understanding what's what's happening between these two people. And I, you know, it's funny. I wasn't really thinking about how the perspectives are are different in the shared scenes, but I'm I'm thinking about how you know where the him he's he's a little more charming in the him film, where he's he's a bit more of a jerk in the her film, <laughs> yeah. you know, or at least yeah. maybe not a jerk, but more rash and and less, um, you know less guarded in his in his words and his actions and so on and less tactful perhaps and uh you know i, I almost want to go back and rewatch him again just with that in mind to, to see how those scenes like where he first appears 
you know, after being out of her life for a while, um, you know, where he first shows up in her class at university and then see how the two differ. Cause they, they do have very, one's kind of a more charming, not a meet cute, but, uh, but whereas the other one, clearly it's, this is not something that she wants to see happen. And it's kind of traumatic to see him again. Whereas that's not necessarily the case in his version of that uh, story. And, and, uh, yeah, I do want to see some of those tricks played out a little bit more, um, you know, I'm, I'll probably be returning to this at some point. Down yeah. There. Yeah. I think it should be taught in film classes. Like, I think this is an, a fascinating, fascinating project. Um, now, uh, uh, let's hopefully that hope that Ned Benson does more work. I want to see more stuff from him. Uh, that's not just a Marvel MCU movie. Yeah. It's funny. I wonder what parts of Black Widow are his. There, there are three writers uh, credited to the film. We only decided to, to pick on uh, on Ned Benson, but but uh, Ned Benson gets the story credit. Jack Schaefer gets the story credit, and then Eric Peterson wrote the screenplay. So I. You know, I, I'm not sure how much of, of you know, it's, it's always a weird alchemy when there are many hands involved in the screenplay as to who created what or who's in charge of what aspects of the story. But, uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm guessing a lot of that character interaction stuff was probably his based on what we see in um, the Eleanor Rigby films. But uh, unless I find an interview with him that actually says <laughs> says so, we'll 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 never really know, I guess. Yeah. Um, so we should move on to cinematographer Gabriel Beristain, a cinematographer on Black Widow, has done a lot of Marvel movies. I don't think anyone would be surprised to find that a lot of the crew of Black Widow worked on other Marvel movies. They they do tend to move from one project to another. Um, but uh, Beristain was was DP on uh, Dolores Claiborne from 1995. Now, this is a film shot here in Nova Scotia, and it is uh, a gloomy, intense uh, Stephen King, adapted from a Stephen King story, but it's not a horror, at least not. It's more of a suspense mystery, maybe even a melodrama. And um, it is, uh, it's a story, st stars Kathy Bates, who had already had success with King material in Misery. She's a housekeeper on an island, of course, Nova Scotia standing in for Maine, who has been accused of murder of her nasty and very wealthy employer, played by Judy Parfit, who is a British actor, very good. Um, her journalist daughter, uh, Dolores' journalist daughter, Selena, played by Jennifer Jason Lee, comes up from New York City, even though she's clearly miserable and deeply estranged from her mother. There is a lot of pain here in both of the lives of the mother and daughter. We discover in flashback that Dolores may have killed Selena's father, played by David Strathairn, who is kind of a shock to see him. He's always playing such nice, warm dudes. And in here, he, in this film, oh, he man, is he's not. so nasty. He's such so, a shock. What, so what a nasty. Weird, what a nice bit of casting against type there. Yeah, totally. Um, and then uh, in both cases, in the past and the present, in flashback and present, we see Christopher Plummer's police investigator. He's especially hammy in this role. Uh, he's determined to see Dolores behind bars. And uh, and there's also a fresh-faced John C. Riley is on the scene. Um it's this is a kind of drama that's in the 26 years since it was made is navigated to television and streaming. It's a mystery. It's uh, it reveals secrets as it goes along. It's got very much that sort of Stephen King pacing and it's very engaging. Um, I mean, it's but it is grim stuff. There's self-harm. There's incest. There's a lot of heavy stuff going on here. Uh, and it's a great role for Kathy Bates. She gets a line where when Christopher Plummer shows up to take a clipping of her hair, she says, I ain't doing any beauty pageants this week. Um, <laughs> but I mean, really, this is a movie. It's I mean, 
mean, the, the key lines that really express what's going on here, it's a depressingly masculine world is one of them. And also sometimes being a bitch is all a woman has to hang on to. Um, yeah, it's... Um, I enjoyed looking for noticeable, of course, recognizable Nova Scotia locations. I recognized the Roy building when Eric Bogosian and Jennifer Jason Lee are meeting in an office. We look out the window and there's the Roy. Yes. <laughs> but uh, the former Roy, I guess. It's and the house is in Blue changed. Rocks. Yes, that's right. Um, but, uh, but I mean, it's, it's a compelling, uh, fascinating. Oh, and the, the ferry is the one that goes to or used to go to Briar Island. So they shot out in Digby as well. Yeah. And what else do we get? We get Lunenburg Academy. Mm -hmm. It's prominent. I think it, is it the courthouse maybe? Or, uh, yeah. Um, and uh, lots of stuff in the streets of Lunenburg. Um, the bulk of it seemed to be shot on the South Shore. There's, there's a bar scene where I wasn't 100% sure where that was set. And I think they did some shooting in Toronto. So they might not actually be a Nova Scotia location. Okay. But, um, but yeah, I mean, that's all. By the by, I, I knew lots of people that worked on this film uh, at the time. It was a big deal um, to have a, a, a you know a major Hollywood studio production in the province at that time, and uh, you know uh, certainly uh, you know you heard stories about how wonderful Kathy Bates was to work with, and and you know she was just like a kind of a den mother on set kind of thing, and uh, and she's later said that this is one of her favorite movie making experiences and one of her favorite roles. Uh, coming right after Misery, of course, another. Um, Stephen King adaptation that that got her a ton of attention. Did she win the Oscar for Misery? Yeah, I, I think like, she did. I feel like I think she, she did. did. Yeah, and um, you know, and this is sort of in that mold, but obviously a much more sympathetic character than her character in in Misery. She doesn't break anybody's feet here, but um, she does have uh, you know have to stand up for herself, and she's a, a pretty unique character. Uh, in, you know, she sticks to her guns. She's she's got a very strong moral code. And, uh, you know, and, and she's got to kind of wait for the truth to come out because she figures that, that, you know, the truth will come out and, and save her. And, and it's, uh, it, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a remarkable performance by her. And Jennifer Jason Lee is very good as her daughter coming back to the small town that she left behind a long time ago. A friend of mine uh, loaned a lot of the stuff that decorates her old bedroom, you know, Elvis Costello posters and stuff like that, <laughs> I think, um, came out of a friend's collection. Uh, so it was kind of cool to see some of that stuff on the wall in the movie. Uh, and, um, and it's, you know, it certainly puts us in a, in a nice light, even if it is set in Maine. It's it's not hard to tell where where it was actually filmed. And it, it just has that great small town gothic feel, a bit of that kind of Peyton Place sort of uh, sort of feel to it uh, with, with some very strong characters at the center of it. And, you know, and I'm shocked that I didn't watch it when it came out, you know, which is like, what, 20, almost 25 years ago. Uh, and it was a treat to return to. And it's very well paced. Uh, I thought the suspense is pretty effective. Uh, I thought the reveals of, of what actually happened between uh, Dolores Claiborne and the, the woman that she was looking after, who, who we see die at the start of the film, the way that storyline was handled, I thought was pretty effective. And, you know, it's directed by Taylor Hackford, who's, who's not necessarily a master filmmaker but I, th I think he's a pretty good storyteller and uh, and had a pretty firm hand here hi i'm lindsey cameron wilson host of the food podcast but you know what it's not just about food it's about people and their stories shared through the lens of food the food podcast has been described as an audible fairy tale how about that you can find us on iTunes and Stitcher. So come join us. We would love to share our stories with you.
Welcome back to Lends Me Your Ears, the movie podcast that takes a look at new films and connects them with older films. And this is our Black Widow show, but what we're doing is a little different this time around, kind of an interesting way to get into the nuts and bolts of how a film gets put together. And we're looking at some of the past contributions to filmdom of some of the crew members, some of the key uh, creative people behind the camera who worked on Black Widow. And uh, we've looked at stuff by the cinematographer and by the screenwriter. And, and now we're going to get into um, some of the other important jobs uh, that take place on film sets uh, that that really make uh, make a cinematic uh, feature come to life. And and one of them is, uh, in this case, is uh, set decorator John Bush, who worked on uh, Black Widow. And here's a film that he worked on from uh, 1997. So we're back in 97. Dolores Claiborne uh, was also from that year. And uh, this film is uh, Philip Saville's Metroland, which is uh, based on a novel by Julian Barnes, screenplay by Adrian Hodges. And Philip Saville uh, is not necessarily uh, known as a cinematic filmmaker for theatrical filmmaker. He's done a ton of BBC stuff going way, way back. And he also directed a TV version of Count Dracula with Louis Jordan from the 1970s that's generally regarded as the most faithful adaptation of the Bram Stoker novel. Whether or not that makes it the best film version of Dracula remains to be seen. But for fans of the novel, it's the one that sticks closest to uh, the characters as uh, laid out by uh, by Stoker originally back in the late 1800s. So he's, he's got this kind of feel for uh, literary works, obviously. In, in Metroland, I feel that uh, that is also the case. It definitely feels like a filmed novel. The, the characters are, are kind of outsized to a certain degree. It, it has that kind of amiable loping pace of, of a novel where it's not really a, a big rush to get to, to major plot points or anything like that. It's really telling the stories of, of these people and their lives. And in this case, we're talking about a couple, Chris and Marion, played by Christian Bale and Emily Watson. They live in the London suburbs. They have a baby. It's 1977. Chris is working in an ad agency. He's a photographer. He takes photos for advertisements. And, uh, you know, they, they seem to have the kind of the, the perfect suburban family life. And then into their life comes uh, his old friend, Tony played by Lee Ross, who just shows up out of the blue. And he's kind of this wild card from, uh, from his early life, he was, a, you know, he was going to be a great poet and uh, Chris was going to be a great photographer and, uh, you know, the next Ansel Adams or whatever, you, you, you know, Richard Avedon, what have you. And uh, they were going to set the world on fire in the 1960s. And uh, that's not really what happened with their lives. You know, obviously, Chris, uh, you know, got married, had to have a family and that meant a secure job. And uh, whereas T Lee, uh, Lee Ross's Tony went the other way, he's just, you know, his poetry was perhaps not very good. <laughs> and, uh, you know, trying to be a world famous poet is probably not the easiest job in the world. So he just started bumming around Africa, you know, going to Marrakesh and going bumming around Spain and Europe and sponging off other people, couch surfing, that kind of thing. So here he is 10 years later, he hasn't really accomplished much in life, but at the same time, he's had this freedom at least to, to kind of do what he wanted, even if he hasn't accomplished very much. He's He's at least lived the life that he's wanted to lead. And he's basically trying to um, impel Chris to lead the kind of life that he wants to live or thought he should have lived. And we get flashbacks to to Chris as a young man in Paris, uh, as a photographer with a very sexy French girlfriend. And they, he takes nude photos of and they have a lot of sex in his dingy Paris uh, Garat apartment. And, and uh, you know, he's got no money or anything like that. But he, at least he's living the artist life in Paris. And that's and, until he meets... Um, Marion, who's 
visiting Paris with a couple of friends and, and that sets them off on the path to domesticity. So it's, you know, it, it's a kitchen sink drama, but it's, it's, it's laced with a lot of comedy, uh, a lot of outsized character stuff, you know, kind of an interesting contrast between the mod sixties and the, the punk seventies. I kind of like that aspect of it too, where we see the, the two different lives in the film. It's, it's not a great film, but I, I do enjoy the, the presence of, you know, actors like Christian Bale and, and uh, Emily Watson certainly bring a lot to their characters and it's worth watching if you, if you uh, have any love for either of those actors. The thing about Metroland that really grabbed me was the production design. Like if I didn't know, obviously I know the ages of Emily Watson and, yeah. and uh, Christian Bale. So, uh, you know, knowing their, their ages at the time, I'm like, oh yeah, this would have been the nineties, but uh, wow, the, the Philip Savile does such a great job and the a whole production of recreating the 60s and the 70s through the cinematography, this sort of soft focus kind of quality. And the hair really does a lot of work. <laughs> yes. The hair does so much work. How, how was your wig dar during this? <laughs> My wig dar was good. I, I felt like this could be their hair because it looked bad. I mean, a lot of the hairstyles in the 60s and 70s really don't age well. and But they put you in that place. And I think they did a great job there. And I guess, you know, that that also speaks to the score and to the way the thing was shot and, and, you know, John Bush, who we're talking about now, set decorator, also should be, you know, deserving of some praise. This looks, it looks so much like the 70s, the house that they live in. And the, there's some really groovy, period accurate, jazzy pop on the score. I mean, there's a lot to enjoy about it. I just, it does not look like a film made in the 90s. So that's full credit to them. I, I thought that the apartment in Paris is right down to the old dance set. Uh, record player playing Francois Hardy uh, records and you know the, the the pictures on the wall just it just really felt like a a 60s uh, artist's uh, apartment and then in the 70s of course the 70s in England aside from from punk rock and new wave it was pretty dingy dreary kind of place you know like I was there in 1980 and it really had that when once you got out of the big cities it there was this kind of drab industrial feel to a lot of it when you weren't on Salisbury Plain or you know, in some historic uh, landmark like York Minster or something like that, you know, when you're in a place like Birmingham or whatever, or Milton Keynes, or, you know, the suburbs, <laughs> yeah. you know, th th there's a certain um, plastic uh, prefab feel to a lot of uh, the sort of built up areas. And, and uh, I thought that the later day ver part of Metroland really captures that, that feeling where you're just going from the city to you know, you're semi-detached and back again. And you can understand why Tony is able to push Chris's buttons so hard, you know, in in, uh, in, in trying to get him to, to recapture some of that wild youth, I guess, uh, yeah. uh, over the course of the film. Yeah, but, you know, Tony is an interesting character because he's, you know, you get, he's pretty judgmental of his old buddy. And there, you know, there's envy in that connection. I think it runs both ways. And I think that's part of the, part of the issue of the story. But yeah, we should talk. John Bush, the set decorator, also made a film recently that is available on Netflix called The Midnight Sky, directed by George Clooney. It's a uh, science fiction drama. It didn't get great reviews. And we don't, I mean, maybe we shouldn't talk about it too much. And um, people are, this is very available for people, but it has a really strong cast. Clooney stars in the central role, um, kind of in this the science fiction disaster kind of 
persona, this guy. He's a uh, he's uh, he's slightly sad. It's not like sparkly, charming Clooney. It's like whiskery, older Clooney. But also in the film is Kyle Chandler, Demian Bashir, David Oyelowo, Felicity Jones, uh, and they are astronauts coming back to Earth. So the crux of it is this uh, interplanetary research vessel returning to Earth, but not realizing this disaster has happened on Earth, and and Clooney plays this character who tries to connect with them. And uh, there are some strange, strange revelations as we go along, some pretty weird tonal shifts. It's just kind of, it's a bit slack, this film. It doesn't, for a film that's set basically at the end of the world, it uh, doesn't have a lot of, um, the stakes just never quite manifest. Yeah, it does feel like there should be a little more tension, a little more drama. And and Clooney is very dour. We're not used to seeing him be this kind of downbeat and kind of haven't, haven't had the life sucked out of him. Although it's under, easy to understand why his character would feel that way. You wonder if maybe he was the right choice. Uh, I mean, obviously, it's his film. But if he was the right choice for this character, I mean, he does embody it fairly well. And he does, you know, because it's George Clooney, he just brings a certain amount of sympathy to that role. And maybe that's what he's counting on. And and the best parts of the film do appear to be his relationship with Iris, a, a young girl played by Kalen Springall, who he's got to kind of look after while acknowledging the fact that they're not going to make it through this. And, and th- those are kind of the brightest spots in the film, you know, the, the sort of chemistry between those two. It's kind of a soft bunt, <laughs> more mm-hmm. than a triple play or anything like that like it um, for my mixed sports analogy there but but it's you know it's 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 not a, a knock out of the park but it, i i didn't regret watching it i thought it was uh, an interesting story with some, with some fine performances that could have used uh maybe a little more dynamic uh storytelling yeah and I, i'm afraid that's that's the way i feel about it too worth seeing but not great finally before we wrap up our episode about uh, people who worked on black widow and of course we talked about black widow at the top of the show let's talk about a film made uh that that featured costume design by lisa lovas who was the costume designer on black widow she worked on The Saint, from also from 1997. Weird. We got a lot of 1997 yeah, films on the- completely uh, unplanned. But. Yeah, totally. This is like the quintessential 90s action blockbuster shot with the maximum amount of anonymity by journeyman filmmaker Philip Noyce, who is a great, you know, he's a quality filmmaker, but he did make a lot of these kinds of movies based on the series of books. And of course, the TV series starred former Bond, Roger Moore, uh, The Saint- uh, it's about Simon Templar is a gentleman thief, very much the modern Robin Hood, a master disguise who uses the names of Catholic saints as aliases. Now, this movie came out, it stars Val Kilmer, and it was that brief period in the 90s when he was a star, kind of his name above the title of the movie, and it was a hit. And the reason it works at all, I think, is because of Kilmer himself. He is having a ball in this role. He's having so much fun with it. Everyone else is the straight person to his kookiness. It's, I kept thinking about Peter Sellers and the way he would do his <laughs> ridiculous accents and costumes in those Pink Panther movies. It's not a far cry from that. We get Hugh Grant doing that in Paddington, too. <laughs> That's <laughs> right. But here it's, it's, it's played not straight because the, the Saint has always been kind of a tongue-in-cheek kind of property. I mean, it was he was originally played... Well, I, I say originally because there were some films in the 40s, and then there was a radio show with Vincent Price as oh, the that's character. That's right, yeah, yeah. And then when it was brought to television, 
uh, Roger Moore, who would go on to play James Bond, plays the same. And he hasn't always been British, I guess. Obviously, if Vincent Price is playing him, then that's the case. But, you know, I'm used to him being a British character. And here we have Val Kilmer playing him. But he has so many different accents and characters and so on. You're, you're not really sure what his actual nationality is by by the end of it. I know I think there's a, an early flashback in the film where he's in a, a really cruel boarding school where they they literally released the hounds on, on the students i'm not not even joking you know and that sort of makes him decide that he's going to be in it for himself from here on in and then uh, then he stumbles into a, a case where he actually learns the value of sacrifice and and doing good and i don't know if they were aiming at continuing this as a series or a franchise but you know it would have been interesting to see more adventures of this version of the saint with Val Kilmer because he's 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 clearly having fun with all the different roles and accents and, cl- and clowning around a little bit maybe more than the filmmakers would like uh, apparently this is quite a troubled production there's stories of of him misbehaving on set and uh, you know when he does the Australian accent I wonder if he's just impersonating the director Ooh, um, yeah uh, <laughs> I have a feeling that that might be the case and also the story was drastically changed uh, I I don't even want to say how if you go into imdb trivia there's a whole rundown of how they completely changed the third act of this film and had to completely reshoot it after a bad test screening so you know it's, it's a flawed and troubled production but kilmer is just so off the wall in his approach to this i mean because other on every level it's kind of like a standard 1990s action film you know when they were just licensing properties left right and center you know after batman was a hit you know oh well let's let's make a movie about the shadow let's make a movie about the phantom you know this obscure comic book uh, comic strip hero that most people had probably forgotten about and and the spirit got revived a few years after this uh, you know great comic book character that was not treated terribly well in the revival that we did get and and here uh you know kilmer doesn't seem to necessarily have any particular reverence for the character or for even the you know the the movie that he's in but that does make it an interesting watching experience. The film was a huge flop and a critical failure, but you know, it's 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 so fun watching him just kind of waltz through this movie with this kind of complete sense of laissez-faire that it's 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 kind of hard to to not get some enjoyment out of that. I actually heard that it was a critical failure, but it actually did well in the box office for what it's worth. Uh, Whoa. But uh, but anyway, uh, maybe my information is is not up to date. I do want to mention, by the way, that Val Kilmer is the subject of a documentary that's playing at Cannes this week that has been really well reviewed. It's called Val, and it's a lot of his home movies. He's shot a bunch of movies through his life, even when he was on sets, like movies like The Saint. So he is sadly dealing with some major um, health troubles right now. But but, uh, but yeah, it's about his him and some of his bad behavior, I guess. So anyway, looking forward to seeing Val whenever it becomes available to us. Well, maybe we'll get some insight into the saint <laughs> from 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 that perspective. I'm, I watched the trailer for that last night, oddly enough, and uh, I'm I'm looking forward to seeing that. Well, that wraps up this edition of Lens Me Your Ears. Once again, we're back here in the studio at CKDU 88.1 FM, where you can hear us every other Tuesday at 5.30 p.m. And it's great to be back in the studio and to be back here with, with you, Karsten, face-to-face. Indeed As it, it were. And uh, we're hoping you enjoy the better sound quality as well. My name is Stephen Cook, and uh, you can find me on Twitter at NS underscore S-C-O-O-K-E. I'm on Twitter as well uh, by the name of my blog, Flaw in the Iris. 
And of course, you can find Lends Me Your Ears on its Twitter account and also a Facebook page if you want to reach out to us for any way, shape, or form. And as always, thanks to CKDU for allowing us the use of the production facilities and the Village Soundcast Network for putting it all together and making it sound so great. Thanks, and we'll see you next time. Lends Me Your Ears is hosted by Stephen Cook and Karsten Knox and is produced in Halifax, Nova Scotia at Village Sound for the Village Soundcast Network. All music courtesy of Gypsophilia. Send feedback to lendsmeyourearspodcast at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for listening. This was a Village Soundcast Network original production. 